it's critically important even in an open and shut case because bad evidence or contaminated evidence is worthless. From Miami Law, I'm Annette Uguez, and this is The Explainer. Evidence makes or breaks criminal convictions. Crime scene technicians report that the processing of the horrific aftermath of the Pittsburgh synagogue massacre will take more than a week. In another case in the Netflix hit Making a Murderer, a possible appeal rests on new scientific testing of the trial evidence. Joining us today by phone is Craig Trochino, director of Miami Law's Innocence Clinic, who digs into the rules of evidence in both cases. Let's go to Explainer producer Catherine Skip for the interview. Good morning, Craig. Thanks for joining us at The Explainer. Oh, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Uh, Why don't we start at the sad scene at the Tree of Life Synagogue? Uh, What kind of things will the crime technicians be doing? In any crime scene, the, it, it's important to assess the entire scene first. So what's going to happen first is there'll be an overall view of the entire horrific scene that was there. Um, there'll be a lot of photographs taken, probably video taken to document everything. Um, and then it goes from a macro view to a micro view. And then every piece of evidence, no matter how big or how small, will get logged, numbered, photographed, cataloged, and collected. Uh, Bullet casings, projectiles, uh, let's say if there's a projectile in the wall, they'll note that, the height height it entered the wall, the angle at which it entered the wall. Um, uh, Biological samples that are every, that could conceivably be everywhere. There'll probably be uh, a person who was called a bloodstain pattern analyst uh, coming in to, to analyze the bloodstains. And this is all as a, as a, as a mechanism to attempt to, to recreate, uh, you know, for the prosecution and for law enforcement, recreate the crime scene uh, and recreate everything. So everything gets, like I said, everything's a logged, numbered, photographed. If it's small, there'll be a ruler next to it so it gives, so it, gives it scale um, to it. And every person who comes in contact with that will be noted for a chain of, uh, what's called a, uh, a chain of custody for the evidence. Um, and that's necessary for, to, for proceeding into court. So it's going to take quite a lot of time for them to, to catalog and, and document, uh, all the, all the evidence. Uh, and then of course the, 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 the victims will, will have autopsies and the medical examiner conducting those autopsies will essentially do the same thing from a more scientific point of view if there's you know if there are you know bullets or other projectiles or other evidence that's available on the body that will be logged photographed collected documented and uh and and sent off into into the evidence uh collection uh repository that that i'm sure they'll have uh all in a in a way to to document everything that happened at the crime scenes so it could be presented at court uh accurately later how critical is evidence in a trial such as this versus another trial where it might rest more on witness testimony or other elements? Well, uh, all all evidence, all, all matters presented in court is evidence. There's some documentary evidence, there's physical evidence, there's forensic evidence, there's testamentary evidence. So it's all generally under the umbrella of evidence. Uh, but and, and evidence is critically important in all cases. Uh, in a case like this, where there's, a, there's going to be just a, probably a huge amount of physical evidence and forensic evidence, it's critically important um, that it be collected properly, it be described uh, properly, 
uh, the location, the precise location where it was found be documented. Every person who handled it, handled it be docu documented. Um, and it's, it's critically important, even in cases where you would say they were quote unquote open and shut cases. Uh, because if you have contamination or a mix up in the evidence, then the evidence is useless. And in an open and shut case, useless evidence doesn't do anybody any good. Okay, that maybe leads us into making a murderer, where it looks like the appeal is is really being driven by a, a retesting and a recreating of the original trial physical evidence. Right, and you can see from some of the efforts that uh, that the lawyer is going through in in the this new season of making a murderer, all the different efforts that can and should be done in collecting and documenting evidence. So from a defense point of view, that's why I said when I said before that um, it's critically important even in an open and shut case because bad evidence or contaminated, contaminated evidence is worthless. If the state or the government doesn't do the collection and analysis properly and thoroughly to, at the first time, then during trial, a good defense lawyer will be able to tear that apart. You can kind of see that's what happened, uh, taxing everybody's memory a little bit in the O.J. Simpson case. They had DNA, and they didn't attack the DNA. They attacked at the contamination and collection of the samples. Um, so in, in order to do it properly, it has to be done very meticulously. And to deconstruct it from a defense point of view uh, takes a lot of time, effort, and, and, and a fair amount of money. It seems on an appeal, it's much more difficult, even if you have the physical evidence on your side, to get that reopened. It, it feels like they push back so much harder. Is the bar much different the second time around? It's completely different. It's, I, I would say it's an order of magnitude more difficult. And the bar goes from, uh, let's say, you know, a six foot high jump to uh, the peak of Everest. Um, because after the conviction, let's take uh, Stephen Avery's case, for example, after the conviction, he no longer enjoys the presumption of innocence. He's tagged with a presumption of guilt. And the system does not like to overturn the apple cart, if you will. And in order to do that, you have to disrupt the entire process. Uh, and that takes a huge amount of effort. Uh, and even if you have massive compelling evidence of, of innocence or uh, wrongdoing that would establish a, a constitutional level claim, it's, it's still, even in the best case scenario, a Herculean effort to, 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 to get traction in a court, to get a court to, to, to actually listen and, and, and rule in your favor on it. And why is that? I mean, it would seem like wrong is wrong. <laughs> um, it, it, recent events would, 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 would let one believe that we are always wrong. And, and, and you know, for the, 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 our, our, the American criminal justice system does indeed get it wrong uh, probably more frequently than we want to admit. We know it gets it wrong. Um, the problem is, the, the question is, why, why are courts so resistant? Um, part of the American judicial system post-conviction is, is based on finality. Uh, they want finality of the judgment uh, because we want to be able to rely on the outcome of a criminal trial. And if, we're, if, if they're not final, then we feel like we can't rely on them. So to some degree... Uh, this desire for um, finality and reliance 
blinds courts and blinds the public into thinking we really shouldn't be looking into these things and asking the hard, difficult questions. When the fact of the matter is, there is a victim of the crime, and then if there is indeed a wrongful conviction, then there's a victim of that wrongful conviction because you have somebody spending 10, 15, 20, 30 years in prison for something they didn't do, and the person who really did do the crime is out and about walking the streets, potentially hurting other people. So when the system gets it wrong, there's, there's, a, there's a, a domino effect of victims. And to, to rely solely on the issue of finality because it's easier for the victim and the victim's loved ones is compassionate for those, but a little short-sighted from the, victim, from, from the system's point of view. I'm curious, on, on a case that gets reopened based on, for instance, in the making a murderer case, it, it, if it gets reopened, it's on the police um, not bungling the evidence, but uh, pointedly manipulating the evidence to convict. So I is it the case that the reason that most prosecutors don't want to reopen cases is because it will call into question all the other cases that that particular officer or evidence collector was involved in. So it feels like it's an evil we're willing to accept. Well, that's, that's one of the reasons. Um, uh, One of the reasons is is you have, you have, you can have a systemic issue with, um, bad actors within a particular organization or a crime lab. And there's been, there's, there's evidence that, that there's historical documentation that that has indeed happened in the past. Crime lab technicians falsifying evidence, um, and convicting people. There was a gentleman in South Carolina named Fred Zane who was, uh, complicit in convicting over a hundred different people on false DNA testimony. Um, so there might be a, an emphasis not to want to open up that Pandora's box for risk of Taint, you know, calling into question, you know, 100 plus other convictions. That's one aspect. From a systemic point of view, we don't want to we don't want to open lift up the rock to see what's going on under there because it might might bother the entire system. The other part of it is that courts don't want to get petition for petition for 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 relief uh, on post conviction on every single solitary case, which is why the rules. Uh, to get claims like the ones Mr. Avery is doing uh, have become over the years more and more difficult to get into court on because the courts, for the sake of finality, don't want to be flooded with what would conceivably be frivolous claims. Um, The problem with that point of view is that in the mountain of claimed frivolous claims, there could be a handful of legitimate ones. And the, my fear is it becomes more difficult and strenuous to have these claims even heard, that the, the legitimate claims get drowned out by, um, by what some perceive as illegitimate claims. Mm-hmm. Something that keeps seems to keep coming up in the Avery case is some law that was passed post 9-11 you know what I'm talking oh, about? No, I'm kind of winging it's not, it here. It's not post 9 11. It was 1996, but I don't know why I'm thinking post, 9/11. It was the post Oklahoma City bombing. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, it's the it's it's called EDPA, A E D P A, and it stands for the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996. 
and it was passed shortly on the heels of the Oklahoma City bombing. Um, and its goal ostensibly was to make executions happen faster after a death sentence was meted out. In other words, there was this theory or this thinking that there are endless death penalty appeals and sometimes somebody sits on death row for 10, 15, 20 years before the, uh, the sentence is actually carried out. And while that was their goal, what, what that statute actually does is radically restrict a federal court's ability to grant relief where there's a constitutional, constitutional violation from a state-level conviction. So in Avery's case, he was convicted by the state of Wisconsin. In order for him to get relief in federal court, then he has to, he has to prove that the state court acted really, really wrongly uh, to such a, a high degree. In fact, it's exactly what's happening in the, the, the parallel storyline in Making a Murderer. It's exactly what's happening in the Brendan Dassey case. He was denied in state court, and then he goes to federal court. And what he had to argue in federal court, because of this EDPA law that was passed in 1996, was that not just that the state court got it wrong, that the state was un the state court unreasonably applied federal law to him. And the law on what is unreasonable means that if I'm a judge and you're a judge and we're both federal judges and we're looking back at the state court's treatment of a federal constitutional claim, we can reasonably disagree on whether the state court got it right. And that means the state court got it right from a federal law's point of view. So the state court can't just be of a differing opinion than me as a federal judge. They have to be so wrong as to be unreasonable. And that's a huge standard. Uh, and, 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 and relief is very rarely granted in federal court. Um, anything in closing? Um, no, I just, I, I think, I think one of the nice things about this season of Making a Murderer is it, is it sheds light on, on the world I live in, uh, which is post-conviction litigation that many people kind of heard of it, but don't really know what it is. Um, and I'm, I'm happy that more people are finding out about it and, and are seeing how, how difficult it is to represent an innocent person where you're convinced the person's innocent and every roadblock is thrown up in your way along the way to, 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 to try and get, um, uh, relief for your, your innocently imprisoned client. So I'm, my, my hat's off to the, the people who are presenting it, uh, and certainly for all the lawyers involved for the, you know, the, the tremendous, dedicated, uh, amazing work that they're doing. Great. Well, thanks again for meeting with us, and we'll see you again. It's been my pleasure. joining us for another episode of The Explainer. Next week on our show, we'll be with acting Dean Osamudia James to parse the widening gulf in the state of race in America. I'm your host, Annette Uguez. This week's show was brought to you by Miami Law's Taxation Programs. One of the leading institutions for the study of tax, Miami Law offers JD and double and triple degrees, including cross-border investment and transactional law for foreign-trained attorneys. For more information, go to law.miami.edu.